Would you open God's precious holy word to Philippians chapter one? In Acts chapter 15, the elders and the apostles gathered to make regulations that were necessary because there was a strong group of people within the early church saying that you had to be a Jew. You had to become a Jew before you could be a Christian. Now, this was a problem with the Apostle Paul. And so they had a, a meeting about it that they might seek the Lord's direction. And of course, the decision came forth that no, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. It's a, it's a new thing that has, that has come forth from the Spirit of God, inclusive of Gentiles, but born out of what had gone before. And so, you know, you'd, men wouldn't have to be circumcised. The only regulation was you, you, you couldn't drink blood from a, an animal that had been sacrificed. Those regulations about blood, drinking blood, which could happen in those days. I, we don't. I don't think we have to worry about that much anymore. So Paul is, is reinvigorated and starts out. He and Barnabas are going to start out on a second missionary journey. Getting, you can imagine, they're going to go for thousands of miles and come back, report to the church at Antioch. And Barnabas says, oh, I want my nephew to go. Uh, Mark, well, he had kind of proven to be a mama's boy and Paul knew that this was a dangerous thing to do, to take Christianity into the Roman world, to preach the gospel to Jews who would be irate and to Rome who would misunderstand and try to kill them. And Mark had proven himself not to be very strong. And so there was a big, sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and they split. Barnabas went one way and Paul prayed and decided to go toward Asia with the gospel. His traveling companions now would be Silas and Timothy. And just previous verses to that in the book of Acts, he had already been restrained by the Holy Spirit to going to doing a couple of things that he wanted to do. So there's a little bit, apparently a little bit of confusion about what to do next and how to start out his second missionary journey. So he moves into a particular direction, goes up, he, he, he sails, you know, up into the Aegean Sea and with the Aegean Sea at the backdrop, he prays what to do. He wants to go to Asia. A vision came to him, a man from Macedonia, Europe. The Holy Spirit of God said, you are taking Christianity to Europe, not to Asia. So then, he had a clear direction. From Neapolis, the port city of Philippi, talk about Philippi just a second. 
go back into the hundreds BC, maybe 1400 BC or so, that section that became Philippi was known for being a gold rush place, gold and silver mines, gold and silver, heavy deposits were discovered there. And so it became a very important place and grew into a city. And when Alexander conquered the area, he named the city after his father, Philip of Macedon. And so the name of the city was Philippi. At Philippi, when Rome came to power, it was such an important city because it had, it was strategically, by military means, it was strategically important. It was important because it sat on the major trade route from east to west from, and even from Greece to Rome. A lot of money in and out of uh, Philippi, big city. A lot of trade that would go through there. So Rome declared that it would be a colony and that meant that they would that Latin would be their official language. They were, then they would become self-governing. Uh, their citizens would be Roman citizens and they would be free from Roman taxation. This is all a big deal. Uh, so this is the kind of city Philippi was. It was there. 10 miles in, about 10 miles inward from where Paul and his traveling companions were when he had the vision of the man from Macedonia. So the next day he said, fellows, we're going to Europe and not to Asia. I think about that a lot. My forebears were Welsh and Celtic from my father's side. They were Scotch-Irish from my mother's side, but from Britannia. And what the Holy Spirit did turning Paul toward Europe instead of toward Asia. And all of those churches, no wonder Paul had such success in planting churches because God was in it. It was God's design, God's plan. And I think of how the gospel spread from there westward and made its way in the due course of time to Britannia to the Celts and the Welsh to those who populated the area and the druid strange God worshipping people of that area came under the grip of the gospel I'm so thankful for it my ancestors lived there Thomas Owen came in the 1600s. He was a Methodist. He was both, as I understand it, as I read it, he was both a minister and a school teacher. And he was the first one of us who came and landed in South Carolina. And as far back as I can see in my family, we were, we were Christian folks. Oh, I thank God for it. The hereditary, not, you don't inherit it, but the, the great foundation that was laid through my family. I go back and I think God had me 
in his crosshairs when Paul received the vision of the man from Macedonia. And that's where he was. So he goes toward Europe. He goes into Philippi. It was on a Sabbath. Philippi had no synagogue. So on the Sabbath day, he inquired, apparently, because they, he was directed to the river where women were praying who had accepted and believed in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And one of them, of course, was Lydia, the seller of purple cloth and garments. The Bible says in Psalm 137, you know, this was a, this was a practice that the Jews had developed. You had to have 10 Jewish men to come together with their families to form a synagogue. Apparently there wasn't that kind of uh, group there, but these women who were attached to the Jewish faith were praying by the river and it was a, it was, it had become the practice because of Psalm 137 when they were in captivity and they couldn't go to the temple. They wept and prayed by the rivers of Babylon so where there was no synagogue, it became the practice of Jews to pray at the river. So that's where he found them. They were praying and Paul preached the gospel to those women. The Bible says that God opened the heart of Lydia to the gospel. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. And so while they were there, a young girl with the spirit of divination was yelling and proclaiming that Paul and his companions were bringing a message from the Most High God and it was the message of the way of salvation. Now you think that, well, that sounds pretty good. The problem with that is the, the girl had a demon. And the gospel would have been mixed with other things if they had just let that stand. So the apostle Paul commanded the evil spirit to come out of that girl, and it did. And so her masters, her owners, she was a little slave girl, her owners couldn't make money with her anymore. Well, that made them mad. And so they brought Paul, they brought charges against Paul and his companions to the magistrates and Paul was taken, he and Silas, they were beaten with rods. It's a terrible thing. Then they were thrown into the Philippian jail and they were put in stocks. Roman stocks were not like what you think. Back in the colonial days, you know, if you had a misdemeanor or whatever, you'd be put in stocks for a while. It's not like that. The stocks were such that, as I understand it, the arms were spread as far as they could go and then they were locked. The legs were spread out as far as they could go and they were locked out. And you were in a very uncomfortable position just as long as the magistrate wanted you to stay like that. But at midnight, Paul and Silas began to uh, proclaim the word of God and to sing hymns. And so they started singing and blessing God. At midnight, an earthquake came in Philippi. 
It shook open the doors to every jail cell and it shook loose the stocks from the hands and the feet of the prisoners. It awakened the Philippian jailer. He thought surely they've all escaped, which meant that he would have to suffer a terrible death because he would have to take a death that was equal to all of, all of the penalties that the prisoners had. But he started to fall on his sword and Paul said, don't do that, we're all here. You don't have to do that. And he came before Paul and he collapsed and he said, what must I do to be saved? It's the only place in the Bible that the, place, that the question is asked. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your house and you'll be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your house. Correctly interpreted. So Paul baptized that Philippian jailer and all of his household. The Philippian jailer became an evangelist to his home, his house, all of his servants, his family. They were all baptized. So here you have Lydia, perhaps others of those women who were at the river, and the Philippian jailer in his household, and that was the foundation, the beginning of the church at Philippi. Years passed. Paul is now in prison when he writes this. It's one of the prison epistles. Churches, especially Philippi, had been sending financial support to Paul to help him. Well, he thanks them in the course of this letter to them. He thanks them for their gift. They are grieved because Paul is in prison. And Paul addresses that. Thus, the letter to the Philippians has become known as the letter of joy. Joy is mentioned 16 times in the four chapters of Philippians, 104 verses, 16 times. Jesus Christ is mentioned um, 50 times in this, passage, in this letter. And the word joy, it's first mentioned, I think, in verse 4, but the, the word joy comes from the Greek word kara. Now, there's another word that has the same root that is pronounced charis, charis, which translated is joy, is a grace, charis, grace, kara, joy. Kara, in the New Testament Greek, is formed as a word that shows to be a byproduct of grace. So without karis, there is no kara, okay? The word kara in the Greek text, joy. Now joy is different from happiness. Happiness happens. Joy abides. There's not some instance along the way when you have joy. There isn't something that happens along the way that makes joy. It makes happiness in the Greek text. It makes happiness and happiness happens. And then of course, the elements of the, 
of what caused the happiness will disappear and fade over time, but not joy. Joy abides. It's always there. We're going to find out as we study Philippians just what joy, I told you joy 16 times, Jesus Christ 50 times. What does that tell you? There is no joy unless you're in Christ. This is the abiding joy of creation. Now, these Philippians, most of them were poor. And so they were giving out of their poverty. Paul writes about that in another letter. Giving out of their poverty to support his ministry. But they loved him so much that even in their poverty, and he writes to them that even in their even in their sorrow over his being imprisoned, yet they still have this abiding joy that never leaves us. It's part of who we are. Quickly, let's look then at these first two verses, the introduction of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy. We know a lot about Paul. He writes about himself in the third chapter of Philippians. He was circumcised the eighth day. He's an Israelite of Israel. Uh, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He was um, filled with zeal such that he was a persecutor of the church, it says. He was a Pharisee. And he said, when he comes to the righteousness of, of, that is found in the law, I am to be found blameless. I mean, he was the he was the upper crust and the top of all of them. He was probably the top of the Pharisees. He was right there. Everybody knew who Saul of Tarsus was in Hebrew circles. But he goes on in the next verse or two and he says, you know what? For all of those credentials that are so important, I count it as dung, trash, garbage. I count it as Nothing. So that I can have the real thing in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. That's in, we'll get to that, God willing, in Philippians 3. Timothy, he picked Timothy up on this second missionary journey, picked him up in Lystra. Lystra, Timothy was a young teenager, maybe somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. His mother was a Jew, his daddy was a Greek. There is no record that his daddy was ever saved, but his mother was a Christian, she was a believer. And happily, Timothy was surrendered to Paul that he might be an aid, a help to Paul, and that he might be the understudy of the Apostle Paul in missionary work, in pastoral work, in the study of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy there becomes his traveling companion. Paul and Timothy, I want to make four brief points here. Number one, they were bond slaves. Your Bible may translate that as servants. Douloi, from doulos. It, it's, it's the only thing that it can mean is a slave. In a setting like this, probably a bond slave. And here's what that means. Master and slave were bonded. They loved each other. In the Old Testament, there was a bond slave who, there were bond slaves, who when the bond slave had completed his task 
and his contract was up and whatever debt he owed was paid, whatever. He was set free unless, unless he willingly served his master continually because of the bond that had developed, the love that had developed between them, between master and slave. And when that happened, they gave him an earring so that people would know that he was still willingly serving the master because of the great love that was there. There was work to do and the bond slave lovingly and willingly did the work. So Paul and Timothy, number one, slaves. They were bond slaves of Christ Jesus. They were not slaves or servants of the apostles in general. They were not slaves or servants in, um, uh, to the church. They were slaves to Jesus Christ. They served Jesus Christ. I serve Jesus Christ. What has God called you to do? You do it in service to Jesus Christ. That's who you're serving. And so here is the service of the bond slave. It's a service that is of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Secondly, the saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Saints. That's a, that's a word that gets kind of strangely treated. You think about how you've heard that word in the past. Sometimes people think that a saint is a Christian who died. Well, yeah, he's saying, my sainted grandmother. You don't have to die to be a saint. A lot of people think, as a matter of fact, the idea of saints is pretty much the idea of, of warmed over death. Because if you look back over the history of the church and you see these portraits of of these clergy way back in the 200s, 300s, whatever, 400s AD. They look like they belong in a casket. They have strange looking little black caps on. They have black robes on. They look as sour. What did that guy say? Look like they were uh, born on the dark side of the moon, baptized in, weaned on a dill pickle and baptized in vinegar. That's about how they look. Saint. Oh, he became a saint. He's a saint. I, I was going to bring the paper and I forgot it. There are four things that you have to, four requirements you have to meet in the Catholic Church to be sainted. <laughs> That's funny. And so, the last one of those four, I do remember, you had to perform a miracle. There had to be a report and there had to be witnesses of your performing a miracle. Well, here is the New Testament meaning of the word saint. The word saint. The saints. A saint, the Greek word means to be a separated vessel. You're set apart. And you're set apart for the purpose of holiness and service. So it is synonymous in the New Testament with Christian. 
It's synonymous with believer, saints. The Holy Spirit of God moves on Paul to call those who are in Philippi in Christ. He calls them, he calls, he calls them saints. Saints. Now, I want you to note here, and it applies to us as well, the dual citizenship that they have. This is just the way it is. They're saints, first of all, in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus, you see that quite a bit. We even saw it in Peter's writings. In Christ Jesus. That means that the essential life of Christ is that into which we have been placed. The essential life of Christ is existing in us and through us. And so we grow in the faith and the things that we are moved upon to do, called upon to do, that is Christ moving through us and in us such that we can't claim any credit. We can't claim any, we can't claim any specific rewards. No wonder rewards are cast back and given because this, we cannot claim any credit for anything. This is Christ in us. We're in Christ, therefore Christ is in us and he works through us. And this is what Paul says to the Philippians, your saints in Christ Jesus. And then he says, but it so happens that currently and presently you're in Philippi. He's going to say later on, much later in Philippians. Again in chapter three, I think. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now remember, I told you earlier, it was a very proud thing for the Philippian to know that he was a Roman citizen. That was a big deal. You had rights and privileges that no one else in the world had. You were specially treated. That's why when they're beaten and then they're let loose out of the prison, they're let loose at night and they're told to just go on and leave. And Paul says, excuse me, you're not getting away with this like this. I'm a, we're Roman citizens, which was a bad shock to the guys who were in charge, the magistrates. And he said, you put us to jail in public. You accused us in public. You shamed us and beat us in public without a trial, without any kind of formal condemnation. You just did it. Now you're going to stand in front of everybody when you release us and you're going to explain to them that you're wrong and that that should have never been done to us. So you see, the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship were special in those days, but oh, how far above that it is to be a citizen of heaven. Paul will write them later in, uh, later in this letter and say, your citizenship is in heaven. Slaves, saints, structure. The church had a structure which meant that it's a, 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 it was a strong church. They had grown quite a bit. It was quite a bit different in that church than it was from the days when Paul was there at that riverside with those women. It has grown such that they are structured and they are an organism, a living, a living thing in which the Holy Spirit abides and Christ lives and the gospel message is proclaimed through the church at Philippi. They were making a difference in their world and there is structure. They had overseers. Now, the word overseer 
here, episkopos, uh, episkopos, the singular, it, it's translated overseer or bishop in the old King James. And it's synonymous with presbyteros, which is elder, and poimen, which is pastor. Those three terms are synonymous. We're not going to go to the three or four scriptures that show that, but sometimes it's in the noun form, sometimes it's in the verb form, but one identifies the other. So he's saying to the elders or pastors and deacons, the overseers and deacons, they had structure. That means that they had, they had a congregation, a congregation that was attended to by ordained men, and they had a work through the structure of the church that had to be overseen by the overseers, the elders, the bishops, the pastors. So it's a church with structure. And here is the salutation. And how, how many times do you see this in the scripture? Grace to you. Now there's the word. Grace. Grace. Charis. Uh, Humane grace to you, kaerene, and peace, apatheu, patros, from God, the Father of us, humane, or our God, our Father, kakiriu, and the Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Grace is extended to us in Christ. And the peace is directly a byproduct. We're at peace with God. We're at peace with God. That's what, and he has separated us to himself. And we have become bond slaves of Christ Jesus. And we have this peace. He's gonna talk about it later in Philippians, a peace that surpasses comprehension. Or understanding. Talks about that later in Philippians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop right there because we have, you want to do that now? Oh, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let me extend the invitation and we'll, we have an annual report that we need to make, the elders do. Just bow your heads and close your eyes, would you? Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came into this world to save sinners. If you would admit that you're a sinner and if you would believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and call on him to save you, God will save you. And that conviction can only come on you from on high. In just a, a minute, we'll be dismissed. And when we're dismissed, elders and their wives will be in the rooms as you exit. You'll see them standing in the doorway. They're ready to pray with you if you'd come to Christ. Or if God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation, they're ready to pray with you about that as well. Now, we're going to be dismissed in our benediction, but we're going to ask church members, please, to remain for just a couple of minutes so that we can give you the required annual report of our, our budget, okay? So let's all stand together right now. We'll be dismissed.
And then church members, if you would hang with us a little longer.